I mean, it's good to be together uh, in a full morning. A uh, couple things before we dive into God's Word together. Um, one, let me just welcome you guests. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, we're honored you're with us. We would love for you to fill out a Connect card, which you can find in the seat in front of you. Um, later in the service, we'll have a time for offering. And um, that would be your offering to us, is just that Connect card. And so if you'd fill that out, there are some black boxes around the room. You can drop that in on your way out. Um, but we'd love, love to connect with you. One announcement for us this, uh, this coming Sunday, we have a fellowship at Sedgwick County Park. Um, and we would love for you to join us. There's more information in the worship guide that you should have grabbed on your way in. Um, this is a churchwide fellowship. We want everybody to come. It's going to be lots of fun. We're going to have food. Um, I did confirm that we're going to have watermelon. Um, so it's going to be really good. Um, I'm super excited about it. I want to invite you to come and bring somebody with you and be a part of that uh, with the church family. Um, we're in a challenging text this morning, church. Um, as we turn our attention to God's Word, we've been walking through the book of 1 Peter together, and today we come to the subject of slaves and masters. Um, we believe that the Bible is a collection of writings that are inspired by God. Uh, we, we believe that as individuals chronicled the mighty acts of God in history, that as they wrote songs of, of celebration and lament, that as prophets prophesied and declared oracles as, as gospelers narrated the story of the Messiah, as, apostles, as the apostles wrote letters of instruction to churches, that in all of these various writings, the Holy Spirit superintended their message in such a way that every word they wrote was not just the words of men, but the words of God. That's what we believe and confess as a church. And so for this reason, we think that the message of the Bible is a transcendent message, that the Bible is authoritative and capital T, truth for all people for all time. And yet we also recognize that much of what was written in Scripture were for specific occasions. And in the New Testament letters specifically, we know that they were written either to an individual or to a church in a particular time and place and for a particular moment. They were dealing with particular issues. And so one of the challenges that we run into as we read our Bibles and study the Bible and try to apply it to our lives is that we have to move from the world of the Bible to our world. That we have to move from that time and place and those events to our time and place in our events. And we have to find the overlap of those worlds to properly make sense of Scripture. And some passages more than others remind us of the distance between those two worlds, right? There, there are at times a, a massive historical gap between the world of the Bible and, and our own. And this is, this is one of those cases where we come to verses in verse Peter. Peter is writing to this group of Christians in Asia Minor in the mid-60s A.D., and in this portion of his letter, he's calling them to live their lives in a way that honors Jesus. He's calling them to, to, to walk worthy of the gospel, to live their lives honorable. And, and the idea here is that as they devote themselves to holiness and good works, that their lives will demonstrate the goodness of Jesus and the validity of Christianity to the world. And so he says, even if they're mistreated for their faith in Jesus, God will use their faithfulness and draw people to himself. 
And then Peter begins to apply that basic idea to these specific relationships. And so last week we looked at the relationship of the Christian to government, the Christian to civil authority. And this week we get to deal with the issue of Christians and slave masters. How should a Christian servant posture himself toward his master? When you first read these verses, if you're like me, you feel some angst because seeing the Bible give instructions to slaves feels a bit bizarre. Now, thankfully, we live in a nation at this point in time, in an age where we have renounced the institution of slavery, but we know it wasn't always this way. And and sadly, it was passages like the one that we're in this morning that slave owners and pro-slavery advocates actually used, misused, to suggest that Christianity condones slavery. This passage may evoke confusion because it seems like the Bible is condoning slavery. And so we need to answer the question this morning of, does it? Why doesn't Peter just come out and renounce it? Maybe that's the question you feel. Why does he give instructions to slaves to submit to their masters? We need to deal with these questions, and then we still need to try to move from that world to our world and to answer the question of what in the world does this have to do with us today? And we've got to try to do all of this in 30 minutes. So I'd like to pause and ask for the Lord's help as we dive in this morning. Father, as we come to this portion of your word, we remind ourselves yet again that these words were written for our edification, for our instruction, that the man or woman of God might be complete, lacking nothing. Lord, these are, these are your words to us, and we want to understand them correctly. And to do that, we need the help of your Spirit. It's so a Holy Spirit, would you come and breathe over these words Help us to make sense of them. Help us to not only understand them cognitively, help us to walk in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to to first give a caution about interpretation, about when when we come to a subject like this or a word like slavery, we, we need to have caution to make sure that we're understanding things correctly. That's, that's the first thing I'd like to do. The second thing I'd like to do is to address a, a consideration of what the Bible actually teaches about slavery. And then thirdly, I'd like to look at what, what Peter is actually saying, the call that Peter's actually issuing in these verses. And so a caution, a consideration, and then a call. Anytime we come to our Bibles, there's a danger of reading into the text our own understanding of something. This is called eisegesis. It means to read into the text something that's not necessarily there. And when we come to a passage dealing with the subject of slavery, what we tend to do is we hear the common English translation slave in light of our own historical context. And so we naturally think when we hear the word slavery, of, of what took place in the 18th and 19th century in America. We think race-based chattel slavery. 
which was among the most despicable institutions ever to disgrace human civilization. But 18th and 19th century slavery in America was was vastly different from first century Roman slavery. Theologian Thomas Schreiner warns us, those who are familiar with slavery from the history of the United States must must beware of imposing our history onto New Testament times since slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race. Lee Powers notes that in the Roman world, slaves came from a variety of ethnic groups and backgrounds. Some were born slaves, other became slaves as prisoners of war, and still others chose slavery as a way to get out of debt or because being a slave was preferable to the uncertainty of finding work as a free laborer. Some estimate that slaves made up as much as one-third of the Roman population. Slaves served in a variety of occupations, including doctors, teachers, accountants, overseers of estates, and private secretaries. Slaves could earn wages and hold property, and slavery was not always a permanent condition. Some scholars estimate that many slaves earned their freedom by the age of 30. Another commentator notes that to be a slave was not to be assigned to a specific, especially low-class station in life, that slaves had the status of their masters. And so if the master was powerful, then indirectly they inherited power as well. And it often made it desirable to be a slave. Being a slave also meant protection, security, and consistent work and pay. Now, I want to be clear. I want to be really clear. Slaves in the Greco-Roman world still suffered mistreatment by their masters. They still had no independent existence. This was not a humane institution. I'm not endorsing Greco-Roman slavery. I'm not trying to pretend as if it was okay or acceptable. My caution is simply that we need to be careful not to impose our modern concepts of something onto the Bible. We need to understand what the Bible's actually talking about. We need to enter into the world of the Bible to see what it's actually referring to. And yet even still, as we enter into that world and we try to understand slavery in the first century, I still bristle at the thought of slavery. And I still wrestle with the idea that the Bible is giving instructions to slaves. And if that's your reaction, I think it's an appropriate reaction, which leads us into this consideration that we need to have. We need to wrestle through. The consideration is this. Does the Bible condone slavery? Here's my answer. The Bible addresses and acknowledges the existence of slavery, but not as an endorsement of it as an ethical practice. See, acknowledging a reality is not the same as recommending it, right? The Bible deals with slavery as a reality, but never as an ideal. And this, this, by the way, is a critical principle of interpreting Scripture, Right? That just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible's setting that thing forward as a good thing. A, a, a good example of this is the practice of polygamy. If you go back and you read the Old Testament, what you're going to discover is that most of the patriarchs had more than one wife. In, in that day and age, polygamy was a common practice. Men, especially wealthy men, tended to have multiple wives. And some read this and they think, well, the Bible endorses polygamy. 
because it acknowledges the existence of it. But as it's been pointed out, if you're reading the story of the patriarchs as a narrative, you would never conclude that the intent of the story is to put forth polygamy as something good, as an ideal. Polygamy always gets the patriarchs in trouble. Every single time. Abraham with Hagar, right? Jacob with Leah and Rachel. Every single time. Solomon and his countless wives, every single time it gets them in trouble. And so yes, it's in the Bible. That doesn't mean the Bible's endorsing that as a good idea. God still works through all of these imperfect men. But that's not an endorsement. That's grace. That's grace, friends. And the same is true when it comes to this issue of slavery. And this leads into a second principle for making sense of the Bible. Which is that you have to read the Bible progressively. You have to read it progressively. And this idea of of progressive revelation is this idea that God didn't reveal all of his truth, his complete will, all at once. He revealed it gradually over time. And so you have to read the entire storyline of the Bible to interpret it fairly, rather than just pulling a verse from here or there. And so a piece of instruction in a letter written to a church may not tell you everything that you need to know about God's will on that topic. This is going to give you more of a picture of day-to-day life as a Christian in a certain context than it is the Bible's overall ideal with respect to that subject. And so, for example, in our passage this morning, Peter doesn't give us a full theology of slavery because his burden is to help believers live honorable lives that lead to gospel witness. And and so he's addressing what it means specifically for Christians to live their lives in a pagan context where slavery existed. Pastor H.B. Charles explains that, uh, that the apostles wrote to new Christians in fledgling churches. They did not write as social reformers or revolutionaries. They wrote as pastor teachers. It was not their goal to overthrow cultural systems. They sought to teach believers how to live for Christ within cultural systems. Now, we may wish that Peter would come out and renounce slavery outright. I know I do. But that's not his focus because that's not even on his his radar. And so we can't take his instruction here as an endorsement of slavery. To know what the Bible truly teaches about slavery, what we'll have to do is we'll have to look at the full picture. We'll have to go from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to fall to redemption to restoration to, to really gain an idea of what Scripture actually says about it. And here's what we'll find, and I'm going to do this quickly. But when we go back to the beginning, when we go back to the Garden of Eden, when we go back to Genesis, the way things were intended to be at the beginning, what we discover is that God made humankind in his image. And therefore, what we discover is that every single human life has inherent dignity and value because every single person has been made in the image of God. Biblical anthropology begins with the reality that God made humans as the pinnacle of creation in his own likeness. The Bible testifies that human beings are fearfully and wonderfully made. Not one class of humans, all humanity. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis captures the glory of humankind when he states that there are no ordinary people, that you have never talked to a mere mortal. 
Every person is made in the image of God. It is sin that degrades this view of humanity. Sin is what leads humans to begin to mistreat and to demean one another, to abuse power, to seek to rule over each other. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve fall into sin, God tells them that that as a result of their rebellion, one of the effects of sin in their lives will be the fracture of human relationship. He says in Genesis 3.16, speaking to Eve, he says, your desire will be for your husband and yet he will rule over you. Now, there's all kinds of debate over what exactly this verse means. But we know at least this much. What God is telling Eve is that from now on, there's going to be this power dynamic at play in the marriage relationship. Husbands and wives will not love each other the way that they were intended to love each other. They will not serve each other the way they were intended to serve each other. There's going to be this power dynamic where Eve's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. And this this dynamic extends into every human relationship. We we vie for control over one another. Sin's gonna lead us to oppress and to seek to rule each other. And this has really been going on since the fall. As the story of scripture continues, oppression and slavery begin to show up everywhere. The people of God end up suffering in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. Later, they enter into the land of Canaan and God calls them specifically to remember their suffering so that they won't repeat that same wickedness to others. He calls them to, to let their slavery inform the way that they treat other people. God gives them instructions against man-stealing, and he sets parameters on indentured servitude. The law of Moses is aimed to limit slavery while the year of Jubilee sets the captives free. And if you're paying attention and reading closely, you see the heart of God is human dignity and justice. And yet we also see that the inclination of man at every turn is to serve self and to use others. And outside of Israel, things are way worse. If you study ancient Near Eastern history, what you'll find is that many of the practices of slavery were were barbaric. It was so woven into the fabric of society that by the 4th century BC, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle argued this. He said that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. This is Aristotle saying that it is a fixed pattern of life that some get to rule over others. His teacher Plato also believed it to be plainly obvious that there were superiors and inferiors, that it was not only acceptable but just for those with power to rule over the weaker. Plato and Aristotle couldn't fathom a world without slavery. And it's in that kind of environment that Jesus enters humanity, that the Son of God steps into earth. The one who holds the universe together by the word of his power. The one who spoke it all into existence, the one who rules over literally everything. 
sets his authority aside, robes himself in the frailty of flesh, relinquishes his power to serve others instead of abusing power to serve himself. And what we see in the life of Jesus is a complete reversal of the selfish ways of the world. Jesus uses his powers to serve and not to be served. He does this all the way to the cross where he lays down his life for the very ones who use their power to crucify him. And then he turns to his disciples and he invites them into this way of living. He said to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like this among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let me make it simple. If you follow the teachings and the ethics of Jesus, slavery is immediately refuted. To serve instead of being served, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love others, as Jesus would say, as I have loved you, makes slavery impossible. And then consider how the Apostle Paul begins to deal with this issue in his letters. Like Paul, or like Peter, Paul addresses slavery in several of his letters to churches. Except that in in Paul's letters, he actually addresses not only the slave, but also the slave master. And what Paul tells Christian slave masters to do is to treat their slaves no longer as slaves, but as brothers in Christ. And then he calls them to worship with their slaves together as equals. Paul Paul would say in Galatians 3, for in Christ there is no longer Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave or free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is essentially doing is saying, I want you to follow the logic of the gospel and see where it leads you. Because if you follow Christianity to its logical end, slaves end up as freemen. They end up as brothers. As one author put it, the New Testament writers did not explicitly call for an end to slavery, but they did bring slavery into an environment where it would eventually wither and die. Now you may wonder why the writers of the New Testament didn't just come out and renounce slavery and exhort the early church to reform Roman law. Well, for one, it wasn't a democracy, right? But for two, one answer is is that if Christians became known for opposing the institution of slavery upon which the Roman Empire was built, it would have done irreparable harm to the movement of Christianity because the Romans would have immediately squelched the Christian movement. And yet what the New Testament authors are doing is they're subverting slavery by calling Christians towards sacrificial love toward one another. And so what they're saying is that if you actually follow the teachings of Jesus and live in the pattern of Jesus, slavery becomes an impossibility. 
And then when we finally consider how the biblical story ends, when we look ahead to how things will be in heaven, when we look to the new creation, here's what we find. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John records a glimpse of heaven. And he describes it this way. He says, after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Here's the picture. Heaven is a people from every tongue and language and tribe who were at one time maybe separated by different social classes, who were at one time maybe separated by different socioeconomic strata, all now gathered together around the one throne of God, worshiping together in one voice. Everyone standing as equals before the throne. Everyone dressed in the same robe of righteousness, all together as one worshiping King Jesus. Jesus said that the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, there is one father and we are all brothers. There are no slaves in heaven. And this is the direction that history is moving toward. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if there are no slaves in heaven, there should be no slaves on earth. And this is the story that the Bible is telling us. And so as we, as we see the overall picture, the Bible's position becomes explicitly clear. Slavery is a product of sin that will not be in the new creation. It's a practice that cannot continue for those redeemed in Christ. In the church, there's no place for oppression. There's no place for using others. As Christians, we're called to serve, not to be served. We're called to love one another as Christ has loved us. Did I make that clear enough? And yet we still live in a broken world, don't we? And it's that broken system that Peter is dealing with here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Presumably Peter is writing to slaves whose masters were not followers of Jesus. And so understand the scenario. You have a Christian slave under a pagan master and the burden of Peter is to help these servants live in a way that demonstrates the goodness of Jesus to their pagan masters and to their fellow slaves and to everyone that is watching. He wants their lives to be a testimony of the gospel. He wants, he wants them to have a winsome witness in a pagan society. That's Peter's burden. And so the question arises, how should slaves relate to their masters? And his answer to that question is that they should submit. They should submit to their masters even when their masters are harsh. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor. That word is literally grace. It's a gracious thing, Peter is saying. If because of a conscientiousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. Peter's calling these slaves to live with an eye toward God. To submit out of reverence to God. 
to honor their unbelieving, often unkind master, to endure grief from their unjust treatment, to embrace the call to suffer. Verse 21, for you were called to this. What does it mean to live faithfully as a Christian? Peter's answer here is to do good and suffer because Christ also suffered as an example that we should follow. Here's what I think Peter's saying. Suffering in the pattern of Jesus reportrays the gospel message through your life. When a Christian is, is treated unjustly and in response to that unfairness doesn't retaliate, doesn't seek vengeance, but instead identifies themselves with Jesus who offer, also suffered unjustly for them, that God the Holy Spirit does something with that. When you suffer unfairly and you endure that suffering faithfully, the gospel message comes alive in your life in a fresh way through your actions. Our impulsive reaction to suffering, especially to unjust suffering, when something is unfair, when it doesn't seem right, when somebody has mistreated you, when you've been wronged, what is your impulsive, guttural reaction? To complain, to protest, to push back at that. We live in a culture that is obsessed with individual rights and freedom. We're celebrating it. Happy Fourth, by the way. Happy Fourth, we'll preach on slavery, sorry. We love our freedom. One of the first phrases we learn to utter as little children is, that's not fair. And this carries us all the way into adulthood. And listen to me, the assertion of your rights is not wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But our society is dominated by this sort of assertion. It is the instinct of the natural man to assert your rights. And yet the way of Jesus was not the way of assertion. It was the way of self-denial and suffering. It was the way of the cross. That we could possibly suffer for doing the right thing. And that this might actually be evidence of God's work in our lives is hard for us to imagine. And yet that's exactly what Peter is telling these, these group of believers. Diedrich Bonhoeffer once wrote in his journal, God's cause is not always the successful one. I'm going to say that again. God's cause is not always the successful one. We really could be unsuccessful and yet be on the right road. Suffering and hardship is no indication of God's abandonment. In fact, it very well could mean that God is using you as a witness to the gospel. Now I wanna be clear. What I am not calling you to is a mandate to live in a relationship of violence. Abuse should always be reported to the proper authorities. That's not what we're talking about this morning. 
But what Peter is inviting us into is to let our lives retell the story of Jesus' suffering and humility and his sacrifice for sinners. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. What if, church, what if we began to see living under a harsh parent or a hard boss as an opportunity to let the gospel manifest in our lives? What, what might it look like for you not to retaliate or to take matters into your own hands, but to entrust yourself to a just judge, to entrust yourself to God and to endure that hardship for the sake of gospel witness? What if through your reverent submission to an undeserving employer, God was using you to draw him or her to Christ. What Peter imagines in these verses is that by, way, by, by the way of reverent and faithful living as slaves, in submission to their masters, that this would ultimately, ultimately be the unveiling of the gospel in their master's heart. That as they submit themselves to a person who doesn't deserve their submission because they're cruel and harsh. That that is an act of worship that God is using. And that God could actually open their master's heart to the love of Jesus, to the goodness of Jesus through their reverent submission, through their hard work, through their faithfulness as a slave. Friends, don't underestimate the power of God to work through your life as you follow Jesus in the path of sacrificial love. That is the essence of this message. That is the essence of what Peter is saying. Live in the pattern of Jesus' sacrificial love and God will advance the kingdom through you. Let's pray together.